You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. We welcome you uh, to our wonderful Out of the Ashes series uh, this evening. Um, it's so lovely to see so many of you here this evening and a very special welcome to everybody who's also joining us online. It's not yet the end of January, so again, I'd love to wish everybody a very happy new year, and uh, it's great to see so many, as I say, at one of our first events. So this is the second instalment of Out of the Ashes, the Out of the Ashes series, um, uh, and we've got a very, very distinguished speaker tonight, the renowned geospatial technologist, Dr. Ed Parsons from uh, Google. Uh, my colleague, Shay Lawless, will introduce Ed in a moment. I just want to say a few words about the Trinity Longroom Hub. Firstly, to introduce myself, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Jane Olmeyer and I'm the director of the Trinity Longroom Hub. And the hub is this lovely building here, just over in, in uh, Fellow Square. Um, and in the hub, we do three things. We celebrate the excellence of the arts and humanities. We promote conversations across disciplines. And tonight actually is going to be a great example of that multi and interdisciplinarity that we uh, uh, promote. And the third thing we do is we sponsor public humanities. So we really are very keen to take insights from the arts and humanities to the widest uh, public uh, uh, audiences. And we do uh, through this signature lecture series. And um, I'd like to formally acknowledge uh, Sean and Sarah Reynolds, whose uh, generosity has uh, made this three-year lecture series uh, uh, possible. The Out of the Ashes series um, explores the theme of cultural loss and recovery across the centuries in the face of new threats to archival records and heritage sites in, in many uh, uh, countries in the world, of course, including our own. And my colleague Peter Crooks in a moment will say something about the series which he has uh, masterminded, but also uh, the Beyond 2022 project that he and Shay Lawless are the uh, uh, co-PIs um, uh, or principal investigators uh, for. It's a hugely significant project and this whole lecture series was de developed and devised um, uh, so we would, uh, over the course of the three years, we're obviously here in 2019, but by the time we get to 2020, 2021, uh, we'll be much more focused on what actually happened here in Ireland. Um, our inaugural lecture was back in November when we heard from Ishmael uh, Saragelden, who is the founding librarian of the Library of Alexandria. I don't know if people were there with us that evening, lots of nodding heads. He was absolutely awesome. Uh, and those of you who weren't here in person, obviously the podcast of that lecture is available on our website. Some of you were saying you're having problems finding uh, some of these podcasts. So we'll be sure to, I, I've probably already done something and have knocked off the, or, or is this Google taking over, Ed? But, but usually there is a sign of where you can actually view these uh, podcasts. Um, as always, we want you to switch off your, well, put your mobile phones on silent, but uh, obviously those of you who uh, uh, are engaged in Twitter, please tweet away um, and use the hashtag um, TLRH um, and uh, join us online. As always at the end, we will have plenty of time for uh, questions and answers. And as I said a moment ago, um, our colleague from computer science, uh, Shay Lawless, will be chairing this session and uh, moderating the questions and answers. But I would like to invite now Peter Crooks from the Department of History just to say a few words about uh, B uh, on 2022 and about the whole Out of the Ashes uh, series. So, Peter, over to you. Thanks, Jane. Well, yeah, I uh, want to echo uh, Jane's welcome to all of you this evening. It's a very cold evening, so it's nice of you to uh, come into the warmth of the Trinity Arts Block. The concrete keeps us warm. Uh, <laughs> that's the, uh, stops the cold penetrating into this uh, bunker that we're in this evening. We're uh, here to talk about uh, destruction and recovery and collection across three years. That's the concept of Out of the Ashes. It arises from, as Jane said, the Beyond 2022 project. It's my privilege to work with uh, my computer scientist colleague, uh, 
Shay Lawless uh, from the ADAPT Centre in Trinity on this project, which is looking to 2022 and our own national archival tragedy in the destruction of the Public Record Office of Ireland. And we're at a very exciting moment in that project where the first phase has uh, concluded. We uh, worked from 2016 to 2018 with funding from the Irish Research Council. And we're now looking into the second phase, um, which we hope to say more about later this year, where we formed a formal collaboration with our own National Archives of Ireland and some colleagues from our own National Archives are here, very welcome, as well as National Archives United Kingdom, Public Record Office Northern Ireland, um, the Irish Manuscripts Commission, and a very wide uh, pool of other archival repositories who hold the resources, the archival resources, which we can pull together to reconstruct both the physical space of the destroyed building down by the forecourts virtually, and also uh, give us renewed access to the collections that were destroyed in that year. And the point of the Out of the Ashes series, which Jane invited me to um, uh, consider how to bring a, a multi-annual series together, um, about 18 months ago now that this has been in the planning, was to locate our own Irish national archival tragedy in as broad a context as possible. Uh, because my impression from working on this uh, across the last decade is that we've tended to treat our own national event as a sort of insular, isolated uh, tragedy rather than connecting it with the wider history of cultural loss, uh, which is a, clearly a global phenomenon and an up-to-the-minute phenomenon that's going on right now in countries around the world. So across the three years of Out of the Ashes, we're exploring the issues of collections, what their significance is, the problem of destruction, environmental destruction, uh, destruction through warfare, and then the challenge of recovery in the third year. So each of the three years of the series is located around one of those uh, themes. Next year, when we're looking at cultural loss and destruction already, I can tell you this evening that we have uh, very exciting speakers lining up, including the former National Librarian of Iraq, who was uh, in Baghdad shortly after the uh, invasion of 2003 and witnessed the cultural loss and had to uh, engage the country on the reconstruction. So that's one of at least five lectures that we'll have next year. And in this year's uh, series, later in the year, we're looking at collections as widely uh, um, uh, separated as uh, the uh, Timbuktu manuscripts. Uh, in June, Shamil Jeffy from Cape Town will come to speak to us about those which were threatened uh, in the Sahel in 2013. In a completely different type of collection in April, uh, the collections of the British Library will be discussed uh, by two colleagues, one who will discuss how they were threatened by the Blitz in, in the uh, Second World War, another who's looking at what's happening right now in the British Library, where they've got this fascinating, in the context of Brexit, completely fascinating phenomenon of the Anglo-Saxon exhibition, which is a phenomenal exhibition that's uh, been curated by Claire Bray, who will speak to us uh, in, in early April on the significance of that uh, exhibition and its popularity. And as Jane says, the series began looking at the collection of Alexandria destroyed in antiquity and then reconstructed as a library on uh, the banks of the Mediterranean um, uh, in the 21st century. But the whole point of this series is to take us from the deepest past right up to the contemporary moment. And so it's an enormous pleasure that Ed Parsons from Google will be talking to us today. A personal pleasure too, because Ed has been a close advisor and mentor to us in the Beyond 2022 project for the last uh, several years as we've been developing it. So we're very grateful to him for that support and um, uh, look forward to continuing that collaboration. So uh, I hope you enjoy this evening's lecture. I know you will. And I'll pass over to Shane now, my colleague, to introduce Ed. Thank you very much. Thanks, Peter. Um, so yeah, it's my great pleasure to introduce Ed Parsons, who's the geospatial technologist uh, with Google, um, and he has responsibility for evangelizing Google's mission to organize the world's information, particularly with relation to geography. Um, so in Ed's role, he works with governments, universities, research and standards bodies, um, who are all involved in the, the development of geospatial technology. Um, before Google, Ed was the first Chief Technology Officer with the Ordnance Survey um, in their 200-year history, and he came to the Ordnance Survey from, from Autodesk. Sorry. Um, Ed comes from a science background um, and has a Master's in Applied Remote Sensing um, from Cranfield Institute of Technology, um, and an Honorary Doctorate in Science from Kensington University in London. Um, Ed says that he's based in Google's offices in London, 
I don't quite believe that's true. And I think if you actually tried to track the number of flights that Ed takes every year, you'd have quite a job on your hands. But this actually comes in handy because Ed is a bit of a self-confessed uh, AV geek or aviation geek, if you like. So for anyone that follows Ed on, on social media, you'll see he takes a lot of photographs of the aircraft that he's uh, taking these flights on. Um, Ed's a, a member of the Board of Directors of Open Geospatial Consortium and was co-chair of the W3C OGC Spatial Data on the Web Working Group, so lots of, of history in guiding the development and design of geospatial technology. Um, we first met Ed um, way back in 2013, so myself, um, Michal Shukru and Dave Brown were presenting a paper at the Urogi Imagine Conference in Dublin's Convention Centre. That conference was on the application of geospatial data, geoservices, and geotechnologies. So quite what Michal, Dave, and myself were doing presenting at that conference, I'm still not quite sure, but it was very beneficial because we managed to, to meet Ed. And Ed has been a really close guide and mentor to us ever since. He's been involved in the Down Survey project. He's been involved in the Fagel Library project. And now he's on our, our board of advisors for the Beyond 2022 project, which, which Peter and Jane have already mentioned. So all that remains is just to introduce our speaker and I hope you give him a warm welcome, Dr. Ed Parsons. Thank you so much, Shay. Um, often you get those introductions and you wonder, who are they talking about? Well, actually, it is me, yeah. Well, that, but that was mostly true. Um, it really was mostly true. Screensaver to come on just when I'm about to start. Um, so, what I want to talk to you a little bit about today is uh, what I call the, the tyranny of ambient location. And I'm going to explain what all of that means uh, over the next 40, 45 minutes or so. Uh, but really, I'm going to be talking about maps and geospatial data. It's something that we actually now, as, as a society, we use maps perhaps more frequently than we've ever done at any point in our history, which of course, for a geographer, that's a good thing. But there is a downside to how widespread the use of geography has become, and that's really the, the idea I'm going to develop during this lecture. Um, and I let me start now. There is no happy ending to this. Uh, let me warn you of that. Um, and likewise, let me just um, provide you with um, some terms and conditions. I come from Google. <laughs> You'd expect this. So the views that I'm about to express are mine only, not those of my employer or any other organization that I'm involved with. So we can all kind of tick the, the box and agree, and then I'm going to continue. I'm not sure how this is all going to work in the video version of this, but let's not worry about that too much. So, a bit about me. Shay told you a lot about me. Actually, the most important thing to know about me is that I'm an optimist. If you are involved in techno technology business, uh, like I am, and I have been for the amount of time I have, you have to be a, a, a glass half full sort of person. I firmly believe that technology will actually improve all of our lives over time, and certainly making use of geography and this geographic information and mapping data and so on actually clearly is making a difference. There are some statistics calculated back in the UK that it's worth about 300 pounds, so 300 euros I guess, uh, of value for each family having access to things like Google Maps because it saves you time when you're traveling and so on and so forth. <coughs> so there's a real value and I think there is you know, huge benefit behind the more widespread use of, of geospatial information. That said, there's a lot of uh, perhaps misrepresentation or misunderstanding of maps online today and the use of geospatial technology. And actually really what I want to spend about half of my talk is actually talking about how the geospatial technology that we use today has developed and as a result of those developments, where some of the big challenges we have in terms of archiving and in terms of being able to go back and look at uh, what we do today. If we you know, were holding this lecture 50 years into the future, much of what we talk about today will probably be lost to the audience of that lecture. 
And that's, that's a concern, clearly. When we talk about maps, this is probably what most of us think about. And this is uh, something that is uh, the product of an Ordnance Survey in Great Britain. I, as, as Shay said, I used to work for the OS in, in GB uh, before I joined Google. And this was the first map that they produced back in, in 1801, the one-inch map of Kent. The reason the Ordnance Survey was created was largely to try and defend the UK from invasion by the French. And they've been very successful in that original mission statement, <laughs> up, until, up until now anyway. Um, and basically, the, the, I guess the hint really is in the name, Ordnance Survey. You're there to survey the landscape from a, a perspective of defence. And actually today, both Ordnance Surveys, the Ordnance Survey here in Ireland, the Ordnance Survey over the water in Great Britain, still maintain... Uh, mapping standards that have in the back of their mind, can I shoot through something? And in you know the mapping standard that Ordnance Survey and GB had up until only the last few years, a wall was um, classified as an obstructing feature, i.e. you can't shoot through it. And that was still in the uh, specification up until just last year. There was quite a lot of shared history. Ordnance Survey were responsible for uh, mapping large parts of Ireland. You can see the 16-inch map for Londonderry Castle Laney. It's actually the largest scale mapping that was actually done in GB. I'm not going to go too deeply into the geopolitics of why would you map Ireland in much more detail than we would Kent, but I'm sure you can probably work out what those issues were. But this is great. I mean, we can look back at these maps from a couple of hundred years ago, uh, 150 years ago, and we can see the landscape as it was then. And they are documents. They were produced by, you know, they took perhaps, you know, decades of, of, of surveying, engraving, very skilled cartographers to produce them. And I just want to show you a video now that comes from the Ordnance Survey GB of the 1960s, which explains pretty much the production process for mapping that is still largely used today. And I'll point out uh, where the differences are in a moment. the internet is still working. <coughs> not to worry if it's not. All right, I can cover that. So, the mapping process, people go out and they survey, and the process of cartography is to take all of the complexity of reality and abstract from that the things that you're interested in. No map is completely telling the truth. Every map lies to a greater or lesser extent because you choose the features that you want to represent. Uh, you know, the classic example are uh, you know, the tube map in London or maps of uh, the uh, you know, bus routes here in Dublin. You move a lot of the features off the map because they're actually not relevant if you're just travelling. That process still remains the same today. The thing that's really changed is the point at the very end, where once upon a time, you would have used a photographic process to produce prints of those maps that you would have been distributed through relatively small channels of distribution to, to basically make maps available uh, to your, your consumers. Mostly, those consumers would actually be government departments. Across the world, most maps were produced for other parts of government by government agencies for their own internal use. But it was a production process. You ended up with a chart, a plan, something you could put in a map cabinet somewhere and you could keep. That all started to change about 30 years ago. Now, to explain how it changed, I need to actually go back to the fundamentals and explain a little bit how the internet works. Who, ha, show of hands, who knows how the internet works? <laughs> yeah, this is not, not a surprise. Most of us, we use it all the time, vaguely know how it works. I'm going to give you the very high-level version of how the internet works. Uh, firstly, some clarification. Here are two gentlemen, Tim Berners-Lee and Vince Cerf. 
one of whom invented the internet, and the other of whom invented the web, which are two different things. And they keep getting confused by people about what they did. So just to clarify, <laughs> Tim Berners-Lee invented the web, and Vincer, amongst other people, invented the internet. The internet, if you like, is the, the foundation. It's the piece that works at the bottom that's largely invisible. The web is probably what we use that sits on top of the internet most of the time. So the internet is basically a network of networks. It's lots of different computer networks. Computers are literally attached to each other by cables, um, and they're all connected to each other. And it was designed by the American military to be very resilient in times of war. Uh, so it's very distributed. All of the computers on the internet, and that includes things like this, your mobile phone, is connected to the internet in any, the same way that any other computer does, all make use of a protocol called TCP IP. And the most important point, I guess, to recognize here, that it's a completely decentralized system. There's no one in control as such of the internet. And something we always love telling politicians is there is no switch on the internet. You can't just switch it off and hope that it goes away. Um, people keep trying, but there is fortunately no switch. This is the, the backbone, the trunk of the internet that makes use of fiber cables around the world. And you can see the resilience that's built in there. Interestingly enough, if we zoom in on where we are today, um, you can see most of Ireland's links go either to the United States directly or they go via GB on the way to Europe. Now, I'm not making any Brexit comments here, <laughs> but there might be an issue there, perhaps. So, all of these computers connected to each other, as I said, designed for robustness. And what you see here is the output from a terminal screen. Those of you that have got a Mac computer, you could try this if you wanted to. And I'm asking my computer at home to find the route across the network to get to the computer here at Trinity College that the history department uh, make use of for their web server. So you can see lots of individual steps actually took me uh, about 12, 10, no, 11, 11 steps to get to the computer that actually has the web server on. So it started at my home computer at the top, that was number one, and then it bounced through a series of different computers to get to the computer that has the website of Trinity College on it. Now you could see should there be an accident somewhere, you know, a particular computer is down for whatever reason, you know, someone's unplugged it. I used to have a web server when I was a, an academic that ran one of the first web servers in uh, for geospatial technology. And uh, you know, it was quite widely used at the time, maybe a thousand people were using it. I used to get complaints every Tuesday saying, you know, we love your website, but we can't get access to it on a Tuesday morning. We can never work out why this was. And it turned out that the cleaner was unplugging the server <laughs> every Tuesday morning. Um, that was a single point of failure in my server. But any of those points in between myself and Trinity College, if that fell down, the traffic will be rerouted a different direction. It might take a little bit longer, but you've got that robustness in the system. So that's the internet. It, operates at a, a low level. Your phone, when you switch it on, connects to a data network or it connects to Wi-Fi. It gets given an IP address like that and it becomes part of the network. The reason I'm um, talking about this, um, pursuing the point, is actually, it's really important a little bit later on in the story. So that's the internet. The web is something that sits on top of the internet. It was created by Tim Berners-Lee on that very computer. Uh, now sits in the Science Museum in London. It was a NextCube uh, computer, very expensive at the time. Uh, it was bought by CERN, so the people that run the Large Hadron Collider. Uh, if nothing useful ever comes from <laughs> particle <laughs> physics, at least they invented the web. Uh, cost a lot of money to invent the web, but it was invented. Uh, this was the first research paper that Tim Berners-Lee uh, published to try and explain the value of it to his bosses. His bosses were really impressed. 
Vague but exciting <laughs> was the comment. And what Tim Berners-Lee was trying to do was to say, okay, can we have a mechanism by which we can share content, share, in this case, uh, journal uh, articles online uh, and publish it much more quickly? And then so create links between parts of those journal articles that go out to, say, other articles or pictures and so on. That's what the web is, a way of sharing content in this form. And that's still largely the way we use it today. So how does it work then? So I switch on my mobile device. My mobile device gets given an IP address from you know, Vodafone or the Wi-Fi in a particular building. I launch a browser, the program that runs on that mobile device. Uh, and I say, I want to go to the history department here at TCD. Um, and I find out by something called a DNS server that the history department at TCD exists on this computer that has that IP address. Again, this is a distributed process. Those addresses are shared by lots and lots of different computers. And I can say, okay, well, send me whatever information you have, and it will send back a document called a HTML document that is instructions to draw a page of information. So I'll get something like this. There's the page I see in my browser. That's the HTML that describes to the browser how to create that page. So it literally just sends a file back across the network uh, after I've asked for it. Okay, all very straightforward. Where am I going with this? Well, actually, almost everything that we do today online is making use of this web technology. There is, there is nothing else. You'll be familiar with the web browsers you use, Chrome and Edge and Firefox and Opera and Safari. But actually, all of those apps that you've got on your phone as well, things like Facebook and Twitter and Google Maps, are also making use of those same web standards underneath the, underneath the scenes. So although you think it looks like you are using an app on your phone, the app itself is using the standards of the internet, it's using web standards to communicate and move information around. The reason this is important is because of that distributed nature. Remember I said this is really distributed. These computers exist. They've got different numbers and addresses. It's very easy, and it happens actually more often than you might imagine, for someone just to switch that computer off, to stop serving the information that they were serving previously. That's very different to a printed map, for example. Once that map is printed, it's still there, you can move it around, you can share it, you can put it you know, in the loft and people might find it 50 years later. If I switch the computer off and I never switch it back on again or I move it somewhere else, that information is lost. There's no one, well I'll clarify this in a little bit, but there's no one backing up the internet. There's no one making a copy of the contents of all of those computers all of the time, because of course the scale of it would be enormous. So, where does that come then from a mapping point of view? Actually mapping developed on the internet quite quickly. This is the first real mapping site on the internet, which was called the Xerox Park Map Viewer. Uh, it was released in, in January 1993 uh, well, the, the Mosaic browser, which was the first browser, was released in January 1993, uh, built on the stuff that Tim Berners-Lee had created. This application came in June of that year. So the web, if you like, was six months old when the first web mapping application was built. And it was very straightforward. And you know, maybe some of the older geographers in the room will perhaps even remember using it. Um, but it basically sent you a picture of the map uh, every time you sort of moved around. You can see at the bottom here, you know, the, the interaction controls are pretty straightforward. If you wanted to zoom in five times, you press that number five and it will produce a new map centered on what you're looking at, but five times bigger. And it, you know, it took an awful long time to generate each map. Behind the scenes, there was, you know, one computer doing all of this processing. But it established a way of operating that actually we still use today. That pattern, you can see you know, a particular address for a web computer and then passing to that address latitude and longitude and the size of the picture you want back, 
That's still pretty much what Google Maps uses today. If you go to mapweb.park.xerox.com today, there's nothing there. So the first web map, historically really important, doesn't exist other than in a few screenshots like this. There is maybe the code available to rebuild this. It was pretty straightforward. We could perhaps rebuild this site somewhere else for demonstration purposes, but it's lost, really. It doesn't exist anymore. The map itself was the product of a process called digitizing. My first ever job was digitizing um, postal address uh, boundaries. Um, fortunately, in Ireland, you've only really just caught up with this. <laughs> but in uh, the rest of Europe, we've had these things for like 20, 25 years, and it's basically the mechanism by which junk mail works. <laughs> Aren't you lucky? <laughs> so one of my first jobs was digitizing the postcode boundaries uh, in the UK and in France, so we could then connect uh, statistics on the population to those areas and basically get junk mail targeted. Um, we took paper maps like this onto something called a digitizing table, and you basically move that puck around, pressing buttons, wherever the line changed shape, and you captured a digital version of the map. What we did largely was throw the maps away then, because we had digital versions of them. And those digital versions sit in files somewhere, and that's largely where most of our mapping data now comes from, from digital repositories, files, that we may choose to render, I draw onto a screen as a map, or we may rarely now print them out. But we're now moving to uh, a realm where mapping data, geospatial content, is just something in a database. Now the process of modern web mapping actually developed relatively quickly on from the Xerox Park map viewer. 1995, 1996, uh, two uh, quite important websites at the time uh, were available, uh, Multimap in the UK and MapQuest in the United States. And they basically would allow you to type in an address or a location and it would draw a map for that location. And what they were doing were actually taking paper maps scanning those paper maps in, and then presenting you with the paper version of it. So Multimap here in particular, that was an ordnance survey map of the area that you were looking at. This was state-of-the-art, uh, very well used. Um, business models based on advertising and to a small extent enterprise uh, applications, so things like store locators, find the closest, you know, whichever store you're, you're looking for. And this was at the very beginning, if you like, of the first um, bubble in the web. Uh, so in 1999, AOL bought MapQuest for the small sum of $1 billion, <laughs> which knocked everybody over at the time. They said, yeah, it's incredible the value that you're associating this company. But it, I think it certainly recognized where the value in mapping data was at that point in time. Let's move on a little bit. Now, remember I said no one is making a backup of the internet. Well, that's not quite true. There is this organization uh, called the Internet Archive that run a, a website called the Wayback Machine. And that allows you to look at any particular website and see what it looked like at a particular point <laughs> in the past. It covers you know, most of the um, popular, busiest websites. Uh, but even if you've got your own blog and it's gone back, you may, you may well find a version of it in the archive. So, okay, you say, well, there's hope then. If there are these guys keeping an archive of the content of the web, there is some value and some potential in us being able to look at a map from, you know, 1997 and see what's there. Well, let's have a look, see how successful we are doing that. So here's uh, the interface to the archive, and I'm wanting to look at MapQuest, historically an important mapping site. And you can see we have archive information that goes back to 1997. MapQuest does still exist today, incidentally. So let's go back. What can we see? So here's MapQuest from 
1997. That's kind of disappointing, really, isn't it? <laughs> the reason it's disappointing is there's no map. <laughs> there's no map because what the Internet Archive is doing is it's just archiving the HTML, the information for drawing stuff on the screen. The map came from another process that was running on a server. And if that server's not there anymore, running that process, there is no map. So everything that goes around the map is in the archive, but the map itself, because it relied on a real-time connection to that server, isn't there anymore. Well, that's disappointing. So there's 1997. Uh, that was uh, 2007. This was MapQuest last year. <laughs> Very disappointing. You can see the map was clearly getting bigger, <laughs> and I'm sure it looks really nice, but it's not there anymore because of that disconnect between the application that was running the map server and the actual web page itself. So that's not necessarily going to save us, but the problem gets even worse. You know, I always said I was an optimist. Yeah. <laughs> Along comes something called Web 2.0. This guy is uh, Tim O'Reilly. So he invented the term. And Web 2.0 uh, was a sort of a catch-all term that said suddenly the internet is going to change from being something that's just about publishing, about distributing information, to something that becomes interactive, that becomes two-web, which, of course, we all now recognise is obviously how the internet works. Um, but it had a direct impact on the way maps and geospatial content was held online. This is where Google comes in. Google Maps was originally started back in 2005. Actually, Google acquired an Australian company called Where2. It's actually the second ever acquisition of another company that Google made. And there were a bunch of very smart engineers based in Sydney. And that was the very first version of Google Maps. Mostly it looks pretty similar to what your Google Maps looks today, I guess. The thing that's probably really different is look at how complicated searching for things were. You had to say, I want to go to this particular location and I'm looking for a business or I want directions. You had to be much more explicit telling the map what you wanted to do, where now the map's quite intelligent in trying to guess what you want to do. Now, the reason that this is important from that Web 2.0 point of view uh, is that the way that Maps was created, was engineered, uh, it was to basically serve the needs of Google itself because various parts of Google wanted to have Maps in what they did. So Maps itself, but uh, the people that were selling advertising to different local businesses wanted a version of Maps and uh, the guys that were doing analytics wanted their own version of maps. So the engineers that were building Google Maps said, well, okay, because you all want to use maps in different ways, we'll build what's called an API, an application programming interface that will allow you to customize maps and put it onto your own web page. Now, originally, this was designed just for Google to use, but some really clever engineers behind the scenes thought, oh, this is useful. They were able to combine Google Maps, and note Google Maps at the beginning covered just North America, or the United States, Canada, and uh, GB, nothing else. They were able to combine Google Maps with something called Craigslist. Craigslist is a, was an online repository of uh, people renting out their rooms or selling their bicycles or whatever. An engineer called Paul Rademacher um, sent out this email message or this uh, message to a listserv that says, look, I'm working on a graphical interface for Craigslist because I want to build a map of where there are rental properties. And he did this without asking Craigslist permission. He did it without asking Google's permission and created what's called now a mashup. This was it. So he took the content from Craigslist and put it on top of a, a Google map. So you can see Washington and boxes available in Washington. What's interesting here is that neither of the organizations involved 
were aware of what was happening. And that map was completely dynamic. It was changing as Craigslist was changing as the properties were coming on and off the market. It only again exists now as some screenshots. The Maps API that uh, Paul used isn't available in the same way. Craigslist doesn't work anymore in that sense. Again, this is now something that only exists as a picture. It doesn't exist as an operation anymore. But that represents what this Web 2.0 culture is about. It's about sites that pop up, interact with each other without any real connection between the different organizations and produce a product that's useful for a period of time, it's very ephemeral in its nature, and then may disappear or certainly be no longer relevant. The other part of Web 2.0 was actually giving the ability to create information to users of services. And from a mapping point of view, that was something called OpenStreetMap. OpenStreetMap started uh, in the UK with a student by the name of Steve Post, who was tired of paying Ordnance Survey, who I worked for at the time, money to make maps. He said, well, why should I pay you? Uh, we can actually go out with our GPS and, and build our own. And it was really funny. This is uh, OpenStreetMap, one of the first uh, mapping exercises. And the way they would do mapping was slightly different to the way that we used to do mapping with Ordnance Survey. And what they would do is get a bunch of people in a minibus with a crate of beer, and they'd go off and they'd just go and map anywhere. They'd go, well, let's go to the Isle of Wight for the weekend. Funnily enough, at the time they were mapping the Isle of Wight, my boss, uh, the Ordnance Survey, happened to be at a conference at the Isle of Wight at the same time. And she ran around in panic that these people would chase her and, and make maps while she was there. You know, completely irrational. Um, but it, it, it suddenly got mapping sort of politicised to a certain extent and became uh, something that was uh, much more uh, relevant and more mainstream for people. Now, I mentioned I was working for the Ordnance Survey at the time. Uh, this was me, uh, as you can see there, the open-hearted sheep technology officer of the Ordnance Survey. I missed the group photo, fortunately. I didn't particularly <laughs> want to be in the group photo. But we had this big uh, meeting of uh, the heads of mapping agencies from around the world at the Ordnance Survey. And while I was there, doing this uh, presentation on the future of technology, this product was released, Google Maps. And it changed everybody in geospatial, the geospatial industry's life forever. Because it brought satellite imagery to everybody in a very accessible way. You could launch this app on your computer and suddenly you had access to these images from all around the world. It's not that the images didn't exist before, they were just suddenly made much more accessible by this tool. And every mapping agency in the world has had to change what they do because this information is now much more accessible. There was a technology element to that, but clearly there was also a business model element to it as well. So where most of those mapping agencies had been licensing the data uh, to anyone that wanted to use the data, Google came along with a big checkbook and said, right, we'll buy all the imagery and we'll make it available free of charge because we'll make our money advertising down the line. So now we take for granted that we can get access to images of anywhere. So this is the latest image of um, where we are in Dublin from uh, Google Earth. Most of the imagery actually in Google Earth doesn't come from satellites, although we say it's satellite imagery. It actually comes from aerial photography. We fly an aircraft relatively low over the city in a grid pattern so that we can see every building from different perspectives and that allows us to create a three-dimensional surface model uh, that we can change that view into something that looks like this. This isn't a photograph. This isn't someone in a helicopter taking a picture. This is a completely synthetic generated image from the, that aerial photography. And it looks like you know, you're there and you're taking a, a photograph. Now, the imagery, unlike that mapping data that comes directly from a database, the images you can think of more like traditional maps because the images are captured at a specific period of time. We call it an epoch. The image is captured at a point in time. So we can store most of those images online relatively easily. So we can go back in Google Earth, 
So here we are in June 2018, but I could go back and see what the docks looked like in Dublin in September 2008, or go back even further to April 2003. And you can see you know, the convention centre being built, you can see a lot of the developments that are going on uh, in the docks here in Dublin. See the, the, the bridge being built. Um, that's fantastic. So that, that works reasonably well. And actually, it's quite easy to store these large volumes of, of data because in the, the grand swing of things, storing satellite imagery actually takes up much less space on our servers than videos of kittens falling off sofas. <laughs> so this is you know, reasonably straightforward to do. The project that I really got most associated with when I started at Google was actually Street View, the, the last level of zoom, we called it. So, you know, traditional maps, you can zoom in, you can zoom in, you can zoom in, and you end up just looking at big rectangles. Doesn't give you a real sense of what that place actually looks like. The idea of a street view was to give you that sense, that perspective of, I'm standing on the street corner, what does it look like? So, uh, funny enough, Google weren't the first people to try to do this. Actually, Amazon had a project uh, called um, Street Side, where you could go and look at a particular location, and they had a series of individual photos that were taken along that street. They never really progressed that much further than doing a few streets in San Francisco and, and New York. But it kind of got people thinking. We rolled out Street View using these cars. They have a, a GPS on them. They have range of cameras and sensors and allows us to capture you know, what the, the side of the street looks like. This is uh, University <coughs> Avenue in Palo Alto. This is where all of the startups start. Uh, Google had an office there once upon a time. Um, Facebook had an office there. And it's just like a high street. You know, it's just a, a normal shopping street. And again, because there are images, we can go back much more easily than looking at a geospatial database and look at the content. So I can go back in uh, a Google Street View and go to a particular date. So I could go back and say, well, what does that look like? Uh, back when was that? 2015. Here is some information for how up to date is Street View. Oh, it's the, the last thing I've ever say. Never say OK Google with a phone near you. <laughs> so where is Street View available? You've got the, yeah, most of the, the world where the population are is in Street View. Look, that's more widespread than you imagine. What's here about maps is often it's really important to zoom in. And if you zoom in to Europe, uh, there's a kind of obvious gap. <laughs> yeah? um, when we started Street View, we rolled it out initially in Europe and France and then in, and in uh, the UK. And there weren't you know, huge concerns. But very quickly, uh, people became more and more concerned that actually, you know, you're taking pictures of people on the street, you're then publishing that information online, uh, there are privacy concerns. And uh, the various sort of privacy authorities around Europe came to the, the point of view that a photograph was personally identifiable information. And that means you have to put a special bucket when you handle it and deal with it uh, in particular ways. So what we ended up doing was having to blur people's faces and blur car registration plates and so on. That's worked almost everywhere in the world. Most of the, uh, the privacy folks are quite happy with that. That never worked very well in Germany. In Germany, they came up with additional um, requirements. And they said, well, actually, before you go and do Street View in any particular uh, part of Germany, you need to get the permission of the homeowners before you go and take the pictures, and if they choose to, they can have their picture blurred. So, if you ever look at Street View in the parts of Germany that there is Street View, most of the cities, you'll find this. You'll find particular buildings have been blurred out where the owners of those buildings didn't want their building on Street View. Uh, we sometimes jokingly call Germany Blurmany because <laughs> you've got these big blurs here. Well, you know, that's okay. Well, you're, you know, you're just presenting the imagery like that. You know, that really valuable information about what those streets look like over those various epochs, you must have that. Well, no, you don't. 
as part of those requirements, all the processing that we do has to be burnt into the rural imagery. So we don't actually have in our own databases what those buildings look like. We've had to blur those as well. Now, I personally, me, this is not Google, I have a big problem with this because I think, well, that's historically, that's really useful to have that information. So imagine you know, if we had this for you know, the last 100 years of Dublin, being able to go and look at any particular street, see what it looks like. Well, because of these um, uh, privacy issues, and you know, we can argue about actually there's probably some good rationale behind that, it means that information is lost. It's not there, we can't go and, and reassess it. Okay, let me move on now to where most people do their mapping, and this is using mobile devices. How many people remember these smartphones? Blackberry there, Nokia communicator, Palm, Trio, probably some of you have those. Um, they were called smartphones, but I would argue they weren't that smart. Anyone like to guess why I don't think they were particularly smart? No, not touch screens, but that's a good guess. That's a really good guess. What's missing from these phones? GPS, very good. I would argue the thing that makes smartphones smart is that they know where they are. This first generation of uh, smartphones didn't have a GPS in them. GPS uh, only really became something that was available uh, back in, uh, actually it was one of the last things that President Clinton did. He, saw, he signed this regulation that basically took GPS from being a military-only uh, system to something that was available for civilian use. And this allowed GPS to find its way into mobile phones and therefore uh, make those mobile phones smartphones. So this was great. Yeah. Uh, it's a shame that Clinton isn't remembered for other things than this, really. But, but that, that was really good. The first phone that came out with a GPS in it was then in 2006, the Nokia N95, uh, which cost at the time about 700 euros. Very expensive. Um, and if you switch the GPS on, the battery would drain in literally 15 minutes. <laughs> so it was great for demos, but you couldn't really use it for much else. But then, of course, along comes 2007 and the iPhone. And this is what we think of as the archetypal smartphone. Funny enough, the first version of the iPhone also didn't have a GPS in it. And you've all seen the, you know, the, the demo. So maybe I'll show you the video if that video works. Let's see. That didn't have much success the first time. Oh, it might work this time. ideas and yeah that, this is really cool this is not just a map of something that was static you already know that maps are now not static anymore 
the map became an interface to do other things. I can take a map and I can find local Starbucks and then I can get in touch with those Starbucks. I can start interacting with the map. It becomes something that is, that is a portal into more information. And that's really what maps are today. They're not something that is static, something that we can just use and, and make use of uh, once. It's something that we go back and, and use day in, day out. Maps are not what they were back 20 years ago. They're something that we interact with. They're something that we can get driving instructions from and avoid the traffic around the corner. We can get information on how well the public transport systems are operating, whether the bus is going to be there on time. I can even book a restaurant from inside Google Maps, find out what the menu is, get information, and then actually book it. And this is where we come to this idea of, of ambient location. I want to finish off with this idea because it... It shows you just how far we've come and where the challenges are in terms of archiving and saving and storing this. Because now, with ambient location, everything happens in real time. And it's only relevant in real time. Ambient location is this idea that, as individuals, we always know where we are all of the time. That little blue dot that we have in Google Maps is telling us where we are. As a generation, as long as we've got a smartphone in our pockets, we will never know what it feels like to be lost because I can always pull out my phone and find out where I am. Who can remember the last time you were lost? It's nasty, it's a horrible feeling. It's something that's becoming you know, less and less common to us. It allows us to view the world in real time. So this is the traffic conditions in uh, Dublin about 45 minutes ago. Those streets, coloured in different colours, uh, are representing how rapidly or not the traffic is flowing. And that information is coming from people's mobile phones who have opted in and are anonymously sharing information about how quickly they're moving. And you don't need a, a huge number of phones to be able to do that at a street level for Dublin, but it works in exactly the same way anywhere else on the planet. We have that sense of how the world is interacting. This is my local pub in Teddington in southwest London where I live. Um, I like it most of the time because it's reasonably quiet. You go there and get quite nice you know, craft beer. Um, it's one of those sort of gastro pubs where if you get a burger, it's served to you on a, on a piece of slate as opposed <laughs> to a plate. Am I just feeling old? What's wrong with the plate? Um, but the problem is when there's a, a sports on, like a football game or rugby, you know, the Six Nations are coming, the big screen comes down and the pub gets really, really busy. And I'm not that au fait with when sporting events are happening. So if I go to Google Maps and I scroll up uh, the information about the pub, it shows me a graph that tells me, oh, over the period of time of uh, uh, the opening hours, how busy is it usually? And then live, how busy is it now? Again, by sampling anonymously these mobile phone data inside the pub, it can tell me exactly how busy it is at this particular point in time. Again, none of that information is stored. It disappears as soon as you look at it. It vanishes. So ephemeral. But it's only really useful to me in real time, because actually, I'm not that interested how busy is it on average on a Wednesday afternoon. I want to know how busy is it now, because I'm going to make a decision about whether I go to the pub or not based on that information. Likewise, if I'm travelling and I want to get a bus, this is a bus here in Sydney, we're using that same sort of data to say how busy is the next bus that's coming along going to be. Not only can it tell you when the bus is going to arrive, it will tell you how busy it is. So it might be that the next bus, only a minute away, is really, really busy, but the bus after it is empty, so it's worth waiting. And actually, people are much more likely to use public transport systems if they have this information available to them. People actually believe public transport systems are working better when you provide them with real-time information. Even though the bus network is actually no better, people think it works better because they have that real-time information. And increasingly, these maps are egocentric. They're about me. Once upon a time, the centre of every map was Jerusalem. Now it's me. I'm the centre of the map. When I log in, clearly I choose to share information with Google or 
Bing or Apple or whoever, and I need to have trust to share information. Uh, again, if you've learned nothing else, go to this website. Now you know how websites work, so my account's at google.com. There you'll find all the information that Google knows about you. And you can go in and you can change anything that you've got wrong. You can delete things that you'd rather not share. You can, if you really want to, extract all the information that Google has about you and close your account and take your information elsewhere. It's something that is a requirement now from GDPR, but we've been doing this for uh, probably seven or eight years now. It's a really important tool in transparency. But if you choose to share information with Google, we can do things like this. We can say, okay, when you jump in your car, we can tell you exactly how long your commute is going to take based on the current traffic conditions, knowing where you are now, knowing where you work. But again, that's a piece of information that's instantaneous. It's only that map, it's only that result at that point in time for me as an individual. The thing about Google Maps now is no two Google Maps are the same. They're generated in real time on an individual basis depending upon who the user of Maps is. So you can't archive that. There is no one version of Google Maps anymore. Each one's different. Likewise, if I use uh, National Rail, if I use the Suburban Railway in, in London, I get real-time information on how the trains are operating. Again, it's instantaneous. That location, that ambient location, is appearing in all sorts of different places as well. This is a, an example of interactive or contextual fiction, a book uh, called Breathe by Kate Pullinger. You download it onto your Kindle or onto your iPad and read it like an e-book. But what's different is this book is actually putting into the, the story, into the narrative, content from your area in real time. So if it's raining where you are, it will be raining in the story for the protagonist. If you are in, I don't know, uh, in Cork, a lot of the story will be set in Cork. It will bring in place names from Cork into the story. So this is continually changing, it's dynamic. The, the story itself changes as you move around. Now the, the basic narrative is the same, but actually the environment, the context, will change depending upon where you are. And of course these devices are things that we, we now talk to. These devices that we have in our homes know where we are. And the information that you're sharing with them, the information they're portraying to you, again is changing in real time based on where you are, your location, and the other context. So increasingly we're living in a world where Actually, everything is ephemeral. Everything is changing in real time. We're not interested in what the situation was like just maybe a few minutes ago. And even the interactions themselves may not involve us at all. This is an app I have on my phone. It knows where I am. It connects to uh, the lights I have in my home that are all connected to my home Wi-Fi. So as I approach home, automatically the lights are switched on. And if I leave home forgetting to switch the lights off, the lights automatically are switched off. If I'm away during the hours of 11 uh, p.m. to 6 a.m. in the morning, i.e. there's nobody home, the lights are switched on randomly to represent there being someone at home to call burglars. <laughs> but there's no human interaction here. This is one computer in my phone talking to another computer in my light bulb both of which are location aware, they know where they are, and they are interacting, doing things based on that relative location. Likewise, my thermostat that controls my central heating, has proximity sensors, if knows if there's anybody at home, and will switch the heating off if there isn't. If the heating's off and I start to come home, my phone automatically talks to my uh, thermostat and starts switching the heating on when I'm about half an hour away from home. Again, I'm not doing this, it's these devices talking to each other. How do you archive those interactions? Is there any relevance in archiving those interactions? Are we interested in what Ed set his heating at on the 28th of January 2019? Don't know. But it's interesting because the capability 
behind all these things is purely dynamic. It's one computer program talking to another computer program, very ephemeral in its nature. A final thought, and I guess it's related back to that last point, and this is where the real challenge becomes, I think. It was so easy when maps were maps, where maps were things that you could print out, you could put in your loft or hide under the bed and then pull out years later. Maps now are purely dynamic. They're completely ephemeral. The map of the future isn't a map. It's a series of Internet of Thing devices talking to each other. Your autonomous car that you're going to use as a taxi to take you away from this lecture in 10 years' time won't use a map. There will be no map of Dublin that you can store and look at because it will be something that's generated on the fly. It might be generated by the car itself as it drives through the neighbourhood and throws away once it's gone through the route that it's taken. As I said, I promised you no happy ending. <laughs> there is no happy ending to this. I'm, I'm laying out the challenge. It could be that actually because of the way that we now interact with information, it will be impossible to store an archive and have a, a view of what the past looked like. Maybe we will have to just create snapshots that are demonstrations of what we could do at a particular point in time, because the actual mapping data itself as such will no longer exist, will no longer be something that's there. We already see it, you know, that way back archive looking at MapQuest from 1997. The map's not there anymore because that service is no longer available. And on that cheery note, I should take your questions. Thank you very much.